views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody, welcome. I want to welcome you to the show. Welcome you to the Dr. Pat Show. Welcome you to Transformation Talk Radio. And welcome you to TransformationRadio.fm. What a great lineup we have for you today on the Dr. Pat Show. Um, Think about this. Have you ever been thinking about taking a step back in time and thinking about, well, wait a minute. You know, what are some of the things I've been involved in in my life? What are some of the things that I that I understood more about at the time that I was living in them? And maybe today, as I look back, they don't make as much sense. But then the question then becomes, you know, what is it that I really want to call into the world today? And why is it the term, if I could, grassroots has never been more popular than it is today, at least in the United States, but I think that's worldwide. Well, I'm bringing two people on to talk about that. The the authors of Grassroots Zen, Community and Practice in the 21st Century. I love this conversation. Both Pearl Besserman and Manfred Steger are joining me here today to talk about why we are looking at a new way of being as we come together. And and it's kind of, for me, it's kind of looking at what, what do we say to ourselves when we look at our lives and we ask ourselves, have we gone full circle? Well, if you know anything about these two amazing individuals, you take a look at what Manfred has done you know, founding teacher of the Princeton Area Zen Group, but then you take a look at how he has shown up in the world. Whether you're familiar with him as a professor of sociology or you're familiar with his work in global studies or more importantly, if you've seen him in person or there can be so many more things we talk about. But then I think about how two people come together because, listen, If we were supposed to be alone, we'd be on our own planet. So now we look at what happens when we bring Pearl into the picture and the conversation, you know, and the story of her journey, her life, um, how she became, you know, this incredible writer, trained as an actor, a singer, a dancer, and now bringing all of those skills to a conversation that I think is way, way overdue. 
You know, beyond all of that, you can look at all the awards that she has received. And you could look at what she's doing to really raise the bar on what we say, how we say it. Uh, She and I both went to Columbia, so I'm kind of happy about that. But the point is this. Whatever we have at the end of our names pales compared to how we show up in the world. Today's show is about how are you going to show up in the world and open this up to grassroots Zen. Thank you both for joining me here today. It's awesome to have you. Thanks. Thank you you for having us. Yeah. I want to start with a question uh, for each of you, and it's this one. Um, Many of us have gone along the way in our lives and have had some challenges. And I have a question for each of you. It is, what are some of the challenges? What are some of the obstacles? Manfred, start with you, that you've had to overcome to bring you to this very moment. Well, I think the biggest challenge that I had was happened very early in my life when I was only four years old. And that is when my mom died in a car accident and my dad was uh, very, very critically injured and was in the hospital for uh, months actually. And I lived with my grandmother who I loved very, very much. And I think from that time on, even though I just remember it very dimly, but you know, Pat, I always had in my mind this question about uh, death Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen to us when we die? So I would, for example, I remember as a uh, high schooler, actually, uh, you know, take a walk to school and walk across the river and look down the river and see the water passing by. And it kind of uh, inside of me, you know, raised again this question. Why is there so much change? Why is everything passing away? Why is nothing staying the same? And what's going to happen to us? So. For me, the big challenge obviously was twofold. One, emotionally, that I lost my mother very early. And secondly, that that event uh, kind of created a spiritual hunger and a sense of, and, and, and a desire to understand change and suffering, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that answer because, you know, the reason I asked that question is because. I too lost my mom at age six, and I think it shaped me. And Pearl, how about you? Well, mine was more a question of identity, I think, yeah. from very, very early. Um, I was raised in a very interesting way. Um, some might even call it schizoid. On the one hand, I was a girl, first child, raised in a, an Orthodox Jewish family. On the other, I was told that I could do anything, be anything, And I became very, very early a child actor, was very, very uh, consumed by performing, by the uh, outside world. And yet I would come home after being on television, on radio, on stage, and I would suddenly become something else because I was sent to a very rigid orthodox parochial school for all girls. And yet my father told me at the same time I was his number one son and could do anything and be anything. He had the idea that I'd become the first female Supreme Court judge. Um, What happened there was a confusion, as you can imagine, of identities. When I was five years old, I was standing in front of my mother's mirrors. She had a triptych of mirrors in her bedroom. And I was looking at myself and I saw trillions, literally infinite numbers of little girls with big red ribbons on their hair 
and uh, in a little red dress. And I thought, which one of those is me? Which one of those is the real Pearl? Yeah. And that's what started me off on a search that led me ultimately many, many years and many travels around the world to practicing Zen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so fascinating we're talking about this because, you know, I too grew up in that environment where, you know, I was raised by my uncles. I got my first pair of boxing gloves living in the Bronx at age five and then was sent off to Catholic boarding school, uh, a school with all girls. And you're right. You know, I, I love how that has enabled us to not only question ourselves, but then ultimately make a choice on how we want to be in the world. And that's what I want to talk with you both about today is looking at grassroots Zen as not just two words on a piece of paper. Um, it's much more than that. Um, and I would like to, you know, talk a little bit about what the idea has to offer that the world is asking for today. Because I don't know about you, I haven't heard grassroots, you know, use so much since uh, 60s and 70s. Manfred, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think grassroots is really in the air. And I think there's a reason for that. I think it has to do with a sense of alienation mm-hmm. and a sense of uh, artificialness. Uh, some people are saying that we're living in an era of the post-truth, you know, where you can't trust what people say, you can't necessarily trust even uh, what you see because a lot of our lives, uh, you know, is mediated through technology. So uh, in many ways, I think what people are looking for and what they're yearning for and what we yearn for uh, is a genuine uh, experience, you know, a human face-to-face, small-scale experience that may not be as small as the family, even though, of course, the family is extremely important, but has something to do with what the Greeks call philia, Uh, which is a form of friendship that has to do with, uh, you know, close friends, uh, small groups of people, like-minded people who come together uh, and do things together. And in our case, you know, we meditate together. We sit, zazen, that means sitting meditation uh, together. But we're also friends outside of the meditation hall. So, uh, you know, we are a small group of 10 to 15, sometimes 20 people Uh, And we've known each other, most of us have known each other for now uh, 25 years in Princeton. And we've created this small group of people who are uh, like-minded and have an affinity for sitting uh, Zen. But it's not just, uh, you know, we see each other, uh, used to see each other once a week. Now we live in in, in Hawaii. But it's also about really cultivating this sense of philia, this sense of friendship, the genuineness, the truth, the sincerity that is part of, I think, what we call happiness in human life. Yeah. 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 And Pearl, I want to ask you this question too, because um, whenever I hear grassroots, I think, wow, this is a call to action of some kind. And, you know, when I was reading your book, I was really struck um, by uh, one of the chapters in the early part of the book where you talk about coming to terms with change. Mm-hmm. And and I really love that, you know, in terms of the fact that you're pointing out to us that there is something for us to either do or know about change that perhaps we don't know, but we think we know. Right, Pearl? Maybe you could shed some light on that. I think what we have to come to first is a recognition that there is nothing but change. And once you face that squarely, once you actually become it, 
you you are not just looking at it from the outside conceptually. You're not just talking about change as a phenomenon that occurs in time. You're not just talking about change as a phenomenon that has to do with psychological changes or with aging or with dying or with losing people. You have to talk about change as what you are. Every, literally every minute, things are changing. Just sit down and try meditating and you'll see that your thoughts are coming. Boom, 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 boom. One changing after the next. You can't even follow them in a sequence. What the Buddha called nen after nen after nen after nen. You know, it's not that you're dealing with thoughts per se. There's nothing really physically there that you're approaching. There is something that is going on and you are it. And once you confront that you yourself are nothing but change, you can't do anything about it. You can't jump out of that. So what you're doing there is you're becoming one with change. And as such, you are changing, but you are also flowing. You are also not obstructed by your ideas about change. What's happening to me now? You are just changing. And that's beautifully, beautifully encapsulated in the breath. And that's what Zen is about, mm-hmm. sitting down and breathing. And no breath is the same. Inhalation, exhalation, inhalation, exhalation. And there is change in that very moment of breathing. When the Buddha was asked, how long does a person have in a lifetime? The Buddha said, as many breaths as he or she takes. I was really struck by part of the, what you're you're talking about here um, in, in the book as um, a, an end to suffering, and I want to talk about that for a moment because I think it's I think it is an energy and a life force that many people are experiencing right now, and without defining it really, you know. So what I mean by that is suffering, as with change, comes in many shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really wanted to, to have you just touch upon this idea that we can actually end suffering. Yeah, I think, I think that's a, it's a wonderful question because suffering is at the very core of our practice. Uh, that's what uh, the Buddha was all about when mm-hmm. he said that he wants to find a way out of suffering, uh, and he did. Uh, I think that, and this links to grassroots Zen, right? I think that in many ways, if you think of suffering as something, uh, again, that happens to you from the outside, I think that's the wrong way of thinking Mm -hmm. about it. I think suffering has a lot to do uh, with the ability to open up and to acknowledge the moment. It doesn't mean that you have to like it. I mean, who likes getting sick, for example, right? Uh, But the truth is that you are getting sick and it's not very pleasant. So as Pearl said, you open up to this and you take the next step. And the next step might be for you to make yourself a cup of tea and go to bed and be with the suffering at the moment. And suffering is, I think, incredibly uh, made easier also if you have uh, social connections, if you have a partner you love, if you have a community, in our case, a small grassroots community of people, you can call. And you can really know you can rely on. So suffering is a challenge, but it's a challenge that elicits in us a sense, I think, of number one, acceptance, 
Number two, reaching out. And number three, and that's perhaps also a very important thing, engaging. Engaging with the world. Very often people think of Zen and they think of austere Japanese samurai monks uh, who withdraw from the world and they're just after uh, solving their own salvation or, or bringing an end to their own suffering. Grassroots Zen is very American in a sense that it is about engaging with the world in an egalitarian, in a uh, way that kind of allows us to actually not just withdraw, but it allows us to come out and see what the issues are, face them, engage them. So deal with the world, don't withdraw from it. Yeah. You know, this is so important because I was speaking with someone the other day and they were asking me, um, actually they were interviewing me, um, and I don't get interviewed that often. I'm usually on this end of the questions right here. Um, It's a whole nother world to be sitting where you both are sitting. I could tell you that. Um, Mm. And the questions that I was asked were, uh, were not the questions I thought I was going to be asked. But one of the questions I was asked was about trust. And and then I open your book and I'm reading about this. And the reason they were asking me about trust, I found out later, was they came across the research I did in my doctoral program, postdoctoral program. Mm-hmm. And somewhere in the in the library of something somewhere, this person found research on trust. Mm-hmm. And um, and it was interesting to be asked about it because at the time that I did my academic brain and researched it, I had something very specific in mind. Today, I'm in a different place. But I, Pearl, would love for you to talk about why trust and how trust is perhaps one of the most important shall we call it energies that we might embrace in today's world? Yeah, it's a hard one because, uh, you know, trust goes a long way, but it also can be misused and people can be misled into trusting, um, well, trusting charlatans and trusting people who promise them the world and give them nothing. Um, This goes for spiritual teachers as well as political leaders. For me, the image of trust is is very much that of what I think of myself as as adhering to, is the image of the what's in Buddhism is called the bodhisattva. Mm-hmm. Me, the bodhisattva Guanyin or Canon in Japanese, which by the way is the only female figure in the Buddhist canon. Uh, and she transitioned from a male figure originally in ancient India to female by the time she got to China. We think of her as Guan Yin, and we all know Guan Yin, the goddess of compassion or the bodhisattva of compassion, however you want to look at it. For me, in that female figure, in that figure of compassion, she's depicted, by the way, as having a thousand arms and a thousand heads. Why? Because she is there all the time, listening to the sounds of suffering in the world, available to us with her thousand arms to provide some answer to the questions of suffering, of trust, of need, of loneliness, of misery, of sickness. 
we have to be trusting in that aspect of ourselves to be able to respond to every moment, to every request, to every need of our own and everyone else's. And the only way we can do that is by forgetting the self. The only way we can have a thousand arms and a thousand heads multiplied into the universe is by forgetting the self, by not clinging, by not being stuck in the notion of me, 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 and my, just dropping everything, especially the ego, especially the needy aspect of the self that wants to accumulate, that wants to be great, that wants to need everything else that is out there in the world and use it up. And for me, especially at this point, we have to trust in the Guan Yin nature that's going to save our planet itself. And you know, Pat, trust is also a practice. It's something that's very, very practical. It's not something that's just airy-fairy, what can yeah. I do you know, to get it? Uh, for us, it starts, believe it or not, it starts with a very real practice of breathing, as Pearl said, in meditation. You know what? What you find out very often when you start meditating is that you even have a hard time trusting your own breath, trusting your own self, because you sit down and you're supposed to follow the breath or concentrate on the breath. And what you find is that uh, you start thinking, well, is this real? Is this too fast? Is this too slow? Uh, maybe I'm not breathing right. Maybe something is wrong. In other words, you don't even trust what is at the very core of your being and your existence. The first thing you did when you came to the world was breathing. And we find that we can't even fully trust that. So we have to practice trusting the moment, trusting our breath, trusting ourselves. And that's where trust then starts building. So it's a very real practical thing in our, in our lives. Yeah, I love what you just said about that because you know, I've been accused many, many times of being one of the most trusting people on the planet. And it doesn't make sense to people. Once they hear me talk about my life, my childhood, and so forth and so on, it really is it, it really shocking to them, you know, to see that if I meet you, I will almost love you unconditionally before I even get to know you. And some people say that is like so not a healthy thing to do, Pat, right? Um, but I've tried not to do it. And that's to me is one of the most uncomfortable things in my life was trying to be something that I'm not. And what my sense is, um, especially the way you depict it in the book, is there are ways that we show up in the world that I'm not sure are natural. And, you know, you talk about them as, um, if I could just say it, you talk about them as perhaps wrong wrong thinking or wrong views. And I want to talk about that for a minute because when I'm in the space that even comes close to this, it really doesn't feel good inside of me. But someone said to me once upon a time, Pat, you know, you know, let me know, can you tell me three people that you either don't like or hate, that you hate? And I thought, I cannot come up with anybody. I mean, it is such a strong word. 
But in the book, you walk us on this journey to understand what these wrong views are. And I would I, I would so appreciate taking a minute for you to talk to our listeners about what they are and about what the impact is from them. Well, it all starts with uh, being human <laughs> and uh, coming into a world already packaged uh, with what the Indians called skandhas, uh, ancient Indians called skandhas. This is the package we come into the world with. In some uh, contemporary ways, we would think of it as uh, genetic inheritance. It's a genetic inheritance of humanity to be filled with greed, hatred, and ignorance, just as much as we're capable of trust and compassion and love and healing, we are also filled with greed, hatred, and ignorance. Ignorance is the basis of it all. And it's not just ignorance of you know, not having a PhD or not understanding mathematics. No, it's the kind of ignorance that is spiritual ignorance that leads us to practice ultimately. In my case, it was ignorance of the self. Who is this girl? Who is this little girl standing in front of this infinity of mirrors? And that ignorance, that ignorant uh, person that comes into the world is led by ignorance, ignorance of the truth of the self, which is that it isn't permanent, which is that nothing is permanent, um, and builds up a self image that is really built and based on ignorance, a platform of ignorance. That ignorance leads us into all kinds of bad behaviors, negative behaviors, wrong views. The ignorance leads us to greed. If I don't know what I really am or what the world is really about, then I become greedy. I need more and more approbation. I need more and more applause. I need more and more money. I need more and more love. Nobody else deserves as much as I deserve. And you become blown up. Uh, for me, the image of, of that kind of blown up ego is beautifully encapsulated in, in the, the, uh, the Star Wars image of Jabba the Hutt, yeah. the gigantic creature that can't get enough, that needs to have approbation, that needs to have slaves, that needs to have food. You know, it can blow up and blow up and blow up until you actually become a hungry ghost and burst because you can never get fed enough. That's the greed. And of course, the hatred is automatically going to come right after that. Because if the greed isn't satisfied on a continuous basis, then you are going to get filled with anger and hatred and fury and rage against everyone and everything else in the universe that doesn't supply you with all your needs, which are infinite, infinitesimal. Yeah. Uh, you know, for, for me, uh, as we look at this, there's so many extensions of what you have to say that are so relevant uh, as what I consider to be a solution for the world we live in today. And even though I know you say grassroots Zen doesn't really have like a set goal, I think there is an end game. And I want to talk about that when we come back. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, about time. Time. What is our current obsession with time? All you need to do is watch the current blockbuster movie or Netflix, or any of those other channels, and ask yourselves how many people are stopping time, how many are people are walking through time, 
how many people are remolding time, how many people are wanting to recreate time. How does this and why is it in our culture time has become a luxury item to talk about and engage people in? But what is it that both Pearl and Manfred are going to share with us about grassroots Zen conversation about time? Before we do that, what's the best way for folks to get copies of the book and also to find out about each of you? Well, uh, copies of the book can be avail- will be available on Amazon or are already available on mm-hmm. Amazon. Uh, you can find them in your local bookstores. We're going to be giving uh, talks in various bookstores around the country. And you can find them from Monkfish, uh, www.monkfishpublishing, all one word, monkfishpublishing.com. So that's www.monkfishpublishing.com. Com. And you can also uh, find us uh, at our uh, Princeton Area Zen Group website. That's www.princetonzengroup.org. One word. Awesome. Let's take a short break, everyone. You know, time. Can it actually stand still? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Do you ever feel as if you're working twice as hard but only getting half as far? Are you trying to connect with your path in life and finding it elusive? Mainstream Metaphysics Radio is a weekly call-in show where we harness our connection with the universe and use what is in our power to affect change for optimal success and happiness. This hit show bridges the divide between what is and what we do not know. Eve, named one of the country's top psychics, also known as the MBA Psychic, invites you on this journey for this live call-in show with readings, featured guests, leaders, and visionaries in both business and spiritual callings. So join Eve Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com as she takes metaphysics mainstream. For more information about Eve, visit EliteTarot.com. That's EliteTarot.com. Awareness is universal. Establishing a living awareness through meditation brings peaceful, healthy, and creative well-being into your everyday life. The practice of living awareness, Spirit Fire's own meditation practice, is built on this belief and is designed for every level of practitioner. Each year, Spirit Fire hosts living awareness meditation retreats that allow you to explore the practice in depth at our retreat center in beautiful western Massachusetts. Introduce yourself to meditation and the practice at the Foundations Retreat. Attend, in silence, a silent meditation retreat focused on mindfulness, presence, and nature. Or be engaged with the meditation sittings themselves at the Deepening Retreat. Start adding to your awareness and attend a meditation retreat designed to cultivate consciousness in your everyday life. For details on attending a Living Awareness Meditation Retreat, visit upcoming events at www.spiritfire.com. 
Hey, did you know why they call the foundation the foundation? It's called the foundation because it completely eliminates your foundation for what you thought your reality was and creates a whole new space where you can have an entirely new reality that is foundationless. So from my point of view, they should call it the unfoundation or the foundationlessness. Either way, there's a big new global rewrite happening again because these guys cannot stop changing. There should be like a change anonymous that Gary and Dane go to. And it's happening April 28th to May 1st. You can find out about it at accessconsciousness.com forward slash global foundation. It's happening in Paris. Go to Paris or do it online or find a pod near you. These are all the options you have. And what else is possible? Everybody, welcome back. A fabulous book, Grassroots uh, Zen, Community and Practice in the 21st Century, and absolutely right. You know, both um, both Pearl and Manfred joining me here today are clearly creating an opening and invitation because, yeah, we are in the 21st century, and there are some things that definitely we know are causing us to stress, to strain, to have lives that we were truly not meant to have. And what's being presented to us, I see it as an invitation and an opportunity. And what does that even mean? Does it mean it's an invitation and an opportunity to try something different, to change? Well, that's what our conversation is about today. Um, Again, thank you both for joining me here. It's really great to have you. Oh, thank thank you. you. Um, I want to talk a little bit about time, and that's what I kind of said before the break. Um, There truly is not a place in our pop culture right now that time is not playing a major role. Now, let me tell you what I mean, and then we can talk about it from your perspective. Even in today's you know, uh, reality television, a show like The Voice, this fabulous singing show. Now it's become about time. Hurry up and vote. Hurry up and vote. And and that's just one element. In a bigger picture of our pop culture, we're holding time uh, at a standstill. We have time travelers now. We have all sorts of things that are making it to number one ratings, and time is in the underbelly of this. I wanted to ask you both, is it an obsession with time or is it a complete misunderstanding of time? Well, let me let me say that I think it's a little bit of both. And I think the obsession with time <clears throat> comes in when we want to package it, when we want to turn it into a thing, when we want to turn it into a commodity. I mean, the question is, where are we rushing to? What is it that does not keep us in the current moment. Why do we always want to grasp 
for something else? And I think Pearl already gave the answer. It's because we have this mistaken idea that we are this kind of solid self, uh, you know, that's that's there, that doesn't change, and that self always needs to have some sort of stimulus, always needs to go somewhere, get something, do something. And just kind of sitting, sitting still or even just taking a breath, taking a step, brushing your teeth without having to rush anywhere is something that is, I think, less and less part of our real lived experience. I think it's also a misunderstanding in a sense that we misunderstand fundamentally what time is about. We think that time is this kind of sequence, is this kind of thing that builds up and goes somewhere. But you know, uh, time, when it's experienced, really at the very moment, not thinking about the past, which is gone, and not worrying about the future, which is not here, time is the present. It's that present moment. The only moment we can experience time is right now. So we are paying so much attention to what happened to us and the people who hurt us and the people we don't like in the past. And we worry about the future. What are we gonna do when we sell this house? Where are we gonna move to? Are our children going to be uh, going to this college or that college? And what we are fundamentally misunderstanding or missing is we can only meet time right now in the present moment. Uh, time is nothing more, or at least our relationship to time and this frenzied relationship to time that you're describing is nothing more than our fear of change. Time yeah. is change. The thing that most amuses me now is reading about all these brilliant Silicon Valley people who are looking for ways to stop time, yeah. which means for them, not to die, let's face it, they're looking for immortality. Immortality means time is not going to affect me. I'm going to stay forever young, I'm going to stay forever healthy, and best of all, I am not going to die. Even to the point where laughably, people are talking about uh, downloading their brains into their frozen bodies and yeah. physically die. Yeah. I mean, that is supposed to be coming from the leaders of our country, the leaders of our world, right? These are the people who are uh, providing all the ground rules for the way we behave in the world. And when I read this, I'm thinking of myself sitting in the playground when I'm a little girl, you know, arguing with somebody over their pail and shovel. They had the pail and shovel a little bit longer than I have it. And I run and I call my mother and I say, look, I gave this to her for only five minutes and she's sitting there with it for 10 and 15 and she doesn't want to give it back. It's the same kind of quality of this childish, egomaniacal, trying to gather in as much as you can. That's the greed. We're greedy for time. We're greedy for money. We're greedy for approbation and love. But we're not willing to confront the fact that time has changed and that everything changes and we're never going to stop time or change. So what are we going to do with it? Best thing to do is sit and breathe and become one with it. And only then will we understand it. Yeah, I love what you're talking about because, um, you know, part of this for me was my own personal journey. Um, 
uh, which I never thought a girl from the Bronx would find herself in the middle of the high desert in California on a vision quest with a woman that later became my mentor and friend. Um, and I was struck by and remembering a situation that directly related to what you write in the book when you talk about right views. And I don't want us to run out of time here. Did you like the pun? Run out of time here in the show <laughs> without talking about them. Because for me, when I'm reading this, there's clearly something in here that I read that says, oh, they are so right. And it's this section. Can we talk about right views for a moment? Sure. Um, well, I would say that we could start off <clears throat> with where we just left off from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're if you're filled with wrong views, then you have to kind of turn yourself all the way around, right? You have to do a full turn and see what it is to have a more correct, <clears throat> excuse me, or a clearer view of where you are and where you're going. When you talk about a vision quest, yeah. you talk about suspending time. Oh, yeah. Talk about suspending everything that you believe about yourself. You know, you have to be completely, and again, going back, the same theme, trust. Trust enters into that, too. Oh, yeah. And also it has to do with clarity, you know, to some extent. And very often uh, we are not clear on things. And what I mean by that is uh, that we're really confused in a bad way. You know, we don't pay too much attention. We kind of listen half-heartedly. Uh, we kind of, uh, you know, catch certain things. Uh, and then uh, we are not really able to respond to the situation, respond to the moment, because we haven't paid attention. And I think paying attention is something that's really, really difficult these days, you know, because you're multitasking, right? Uh, you're on your social media, on your uh, Facebook all the time, and you're kind of posting endless things and you're interacting and uh, have millions of friends and everything is somehow paid attention to a little bit, but not really. And the result is lack of clarity, lack of sense of direction, lack of really reflecting on, you talk about a quest that you went on, right? Your yeah, spiritual yeah. quest. Uh, you have to be clear that this is who I am and this is what I really need to do right now. And if you don't have this sense of clarity, then I think uh, you're just going to be used, talking about time, used by the 24 hours rather than actually engaging with the 24 hours. I think yeah, when you yeah. talk about wrong views and right views, uh, something, again, very amusing comes to me in the form of an image. We go to a Whole Foods market here every Saturday, and we notice, uh, and we, you know, we have a shopping list, but we walk around and we really pay attention to not only what we need, but what's actually physically there. Okay, yeah. If there are papayas there, we'll stand there and you see and you experience, because we're trained, I guess, in full attention, the greenness of the papaya, the texture of the papaya. You know, right next to you is standing a tourist, mostly from Japan, I have to say, which is funny since Japan is the heart of Zen, the home of Zen. And they're standing there with their little cell phones taking pictures of 
the papayas. Do you know they never touch the fruit? They never, I'm sure they never even buy it or eat it. They're so busy taking pictures of it. They go from one piece of fruit to another, photographing the fruit. For one reason or another, I still don't understand it. There must be some cultural uh, reason that they've never taken a papaya picture before, or they've never, who knows, tasted a papaya before and want to bring it back to their friends. They post it right away. So there isn't even any time for people to pay attention to what they're really doing there, to what they're seeing, to what they're smelling, to what they're tasting. And to me, that uh, mediation between a screen and yourself and the thing that you're supposedly looking at or experiencing completely destroys the possibility of ever really having a correct view, a real view of what's going on. Everything is so fake. Yeah. You know, for me, I, I, I love that I get people that I, I have the uh, honor and the privilege of working with. One of them is a very dear friend of mine. She does a regular radio show with us, has been doing it for about five years. And one of the things she taught me was when I am in this space, and let's just call it a space of confusion for the moment, you know, can I take a breath, breathe in and out, and just ask, what else is possible here? And for whatever reason, she said, this is not about a solution. You're not going to get a solution because there actually isn't a problem. Mm-hmm. You're looking for awareness. It's mm-hmm. awareness you get when you ask that question. And I think that we should talk about that for a minute because if we are too busy taking pictures or doing all the, uh, you name it, we are so missing out on a possibility of a new perspective or an awareness. You know, tell me if that relates or how it relates to grassroots Zen. Uh, I think it's it relates a lot. And we actually, again, I bring it down to the level of practice mm-hmm. and maybe your listeners are really interested in that. Yes. Uh, we, call it, we call it micro Zazen. So again, Zazen means sitting Zazen sitting meditation, and micro, obviously everybody knows what that means. It means little, little, tiny, tiny. So we're talking about small, tiny moments of awareness throughout the day. So for example, sometimes we have to wait online to do something, and we are rushing, and we want to get it over with, and why is that, why are they taking so long? Instead of doing that, why don't you just stay online and practice a few moments of just breathing in and breathing out? And just being fully 100% online, you know, it's hard to do because we have this inner urge to get it over with and to quickly rush to the next thing. But if you do that regularly, it works. Or another example, we've all experienced that, right? In an elevator, you go up an elevator to whatever, the 20th, 25th floor, you got 25 minutes of awkwardness, (laughs) meaning that we're standing in there, nobody talks. Everybody wants to get out. It feels very uncomfortable. Instead of doing that, why don't you just stand there and take a few breaths and follow Mm -hmm. your breath and fall into your breath? Forget about everything else. And don't let the 25 seconds use you. See the 25 seconds in this elevator, not as a moment of a moment of awkwardness, but moments of practice. 
uh, for me, I became <clears throat> very, <clears throat> excuse me, very aware <clears throat> of my surroundings when I was teaching yoga. Um, oh, yeah. One of the things that makes you aware very quickly is your physical body. Uh, you become aware of, <clears throat> like I am right this moment, of the problem. <laughs> anyway. What well, I, I think, yeah, what you're talking about, though, is we do become aware. And that awareness shows up. And, you know, uh, as my friend would say to me, and, and certainly when I was out in, in the desert on a vision quest, uh, my level of awareness out in the desert on a vision quest became uh, tr just transformatively different. So that when I came back, I was not the same. Now, I wish I could say that the way that I was out on Vision Quest, and I've done it many times, and I have also taken other people out, um, I wish I could say that those moment-to-moment -moment beautiful experience, me and the lizard sitting there talking to each other, you know, I wish I could say I come back to my busy life and it's me and the lizard again. Mm -hmm. um, not quite, you know, me and the lizard, but maybe it's the butterfly now. Um, if we... If we all were to engage, if we all were to say yes to grassroots Zen, our days would start to change. Mm -hmm. Who we are on the inside would start to change, right? Our view of the world would start to change. That awareness of my body now without the fear of my body, mm -hmm. right, would change me. Mm -hmm. Is that what people are discovering? Yeah, I think so. And I think that I think that the the lizard, Pat, is right here. It's just mm -hmm. called it's just called Manfred. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, seriously, uh, that's you know, yeah. it's, of course, it doesn't it feels different. I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing. But what I'm saying is it is in terms of. Our existential experience, it is the same. Things, moments always feel different, but the lizard is always there. And that's what we are talking about. That's precisely what we are trying to get across. Some moments really feel terrible. Other moments feel great. Some moments feel like uh, you're really lifted up and you feel, you feel the energy. Other moments you are tired and you don't want to see anybody. So there's a huge qualitative difference, but at the same time, they are all just there. And that's what we can take in. That's what we're on earth to do is to really fully experience what it is to be human in every moment, not in the past, not in the future, but right now. You can have that, you can have that lizard experience every day if you just take 25 minutes out to sit zazen. And when you sit, when you meditate, when you do that vision quest, and you incorporate it into your daily life on a regular basis, it will infuse the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not just yeah. during the day, but for your life. You will be attentive. You will be aware. You will be awake. Not to say that you're not going to fall back asleep from moment to moment or you're not going to get cranky. But even that crankiness itself is going to be infused with that self-awareness that you have garnered through Months, years, days of practice. Yeah. You know, uh, what we're talking about here, and, le and let's spend a few minutes, if we could, you know, that we have left, 
um, helping our listeners understand that there is a way to do this, that this is something they could learn, um, that this is something they could do with others, because, you know, hence the word grassroots. Exactly. Uh, and I think it's really important to find, uh, you know, we're talking, I've talked about trust before that. Yeah. To to really find, uh, you know, a small group of Zen people who sit together, or if it's some other meditation that you're interested in, there's there are Christian forms of contemplation that yeah. is the meditation. But to find a group where you really feel, you know, you're not uh, being pushed to do something that you really don't want to do or that feels uncomfortable. Of course, you're going to be challenged, but you're not going to be pushed. And that you find a place where you really sit down and you start learning to meditate. We can't stress that enough. Even if it's just a few minutes every day and the simplest meditation is to just follow your breath as it comes and as it goes. And, you know, there are different meditation techniques, but many, many of them are really based on that experience. Why? Because that's the, the guidepost in our life. That's the thing that constantly comes and goes. It always changes. And it gives us a really wonderful focus to really understand who we are, what our existence is about, and how we relate to, to other people and how we relate to our experiences as we go through. I think we have to experience the ordinariness of it. Uh, if we go off thinking that we're going to find some very esoteric, or supernatural path, or some very transcendent path, then we're really going to come up against a brick wall. If we uh, come to a place and we see that the teacher doesn't have the capacity to walk on water or enlighten us with a touch of a feather, uh, then we're going to go astray. We have to also, by the same token, see to it that the people that we're sitting with or that the people we invest our trust in to guide us are also not going to take our money or sexually abuse us because that's a form of power, uh, manipulation of power that also unfortunately happens in a lot of circles where people are looking sincerely for some kind of truth, some kind of self-realization. So we have to be very canny. We have to be, I think these days people are. Uh, we know when we're being manipulated generally and we know also when we're very, uh, too trusting, too open. Um, but we also have to be, uh, have that trust in the process, have that trust in our own desire to find this kind of peace, this kind of reconciliation with the self, with others, with the world. And I think we can do that if we just automatically follow that path, that path that knows that nothing special and yet everything special in the radiance of this very moment. And the way to find that is, as Manfred said, just trusting in the breath, trusting in your ability to sit down quietly every day, and that will manifest more and more and more in your daily life. Wow, thank you both for today. Thank you for a great, uh, great conversation. And thank you for writing such an amazing book and creating such an invitation. Thank you for today. Thanks thank so you, much, Pat, Pat for having us. Um, I want to thank our listeners. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Christine Upchurch.
preceding audio was via a Skype call.